But we want to <clears throat> just lift this study up to you this morning. Holy Spirit, we just pray our hearts are opened to your word, to your calling, to your guiding and exposing and convicting, but at the same time, turn around and demonstrating your love and your patience. And we thank you for this morning to gather and get into your word. We want to lift up our requests to you this morning, specifically again, Lord, focusing on Pastor Landon and his sabbatical. We thank you for this time that you've already in for him to um, rest in you and in these couple of months that he is refreshed, empowered, and when we see him back in August, he's ready to go. So we thank you, Father, for these things. I ask us, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians today, doing keeping the synthetic study going, just specifically going through and hitting the major themes of each of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. And if you look inside your bulletin, there should be an outline, as there has pretty much been every week, as to the book. And outlines, again, are important. I like to have an outline. It just keeps the book fresh in my mind. I can go through it, close my eyes, go through the book of Ephesians. If you have an outline like this, you can get the main themes down. So if you're ever discussing something with somebody or they're like, where is that in the scripture? You know, you can go to Ephesians chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 4, know what the contents are, and it just helps us in those types of things. So the book of Ephesians, the historical background, it's important that we know the background and the purpose and the context of each book to understand exactly what the Holy Spirit had been inspiring Paul to do. Paul wrote Ephesians, and there's other epistles that are known as prison epistles, such as Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, meaning he wrote these between 60 to 62 AD during his first Roman imprisonment. So you would think as I see every week, people who are incarcerated become very um, depressed or pessimistic or frustrated. So you would think that's what would come out of Paul's prison epistles, but it's the exact opposite that comes out. It's really interesting. In spite of Paul's circumstances that he was in, through these prison epistles, we're going to see that joy, peace, comfort comes out of this in midst of his struggles and his circumstances. So during that time, Paul was under house arrest he lived in his own rented quarters under guards by Roman soldiers. He was allowed visitors and he could minister. He was not chained in prison or in a cell at his time, but he was during, he was during his second Roman um, imprisonment. Like if you see 2 Timothy, that's when he was chained. So he, he was incarcerated, I believe, two times, and um, there's just a difference between those two. Now the purpose of Ephesians, Paul's emphasis is on the church, the body of Christ. And in systematic theology, this is known as ecclesiology. And you can go through the entire New Testament under this study and study everything that the Bible says about the church. Well, Paul really hammers home a lot of things on ecclesiology or church, the body of Christ. And the main theme that we're going to get at when we get to Ephesians 3 is both Jewish and Gentile believers coming into one group, which is known as the body of Christ. It suggests that Paul wrote this to promote unity within the Ephesian church and in the universal church. See, this is a local church. A universal church is every born-again believer. But we have different local churches, and this is what Paul was doing. He's promoting unity. So Ephesians reveals that the church is part of God's eternal plan. This is what's really interesting. As more and more revelation has come through to Old Testament, to New Testament, and as we have now about 6,000 years of human history, we can trace and see through the Word of God what God's plan was during Abraham and how that came out during Joshua and how the prophets spoke about Jesus and what Jesus said would come in the next 2,000 years in his kingdom parables of Matthew 13. God's plan that he had originated from before the foundation of the world becoming unfolded so we can see that God's eternal plan and God's power, that he is in control and that he is sovereign. And through the church, 
as we're going to get into this to, to this morning, through the church, the body of Christ, the individual believers, overcoming not just human enemies, but spiritual enemies. And we'll get into that in a little bit when we get to Ephesians 6. But, so going to Ephesians chapter 1, if you turn and look at verse 3, these are one of this section here, 3 through 14 in Ephesians is really neat because if you look at it in the original language, it's one sentence. We have it in 13, or 11 verses, but in the Greek, it's one long, continuous sentence. But in our Bibles, we break this up. This is excellent devotional reading. If you're ever down or frustrated or think, you know, you know, going through a hard time, maybe wondering what the point of life is or value or those types of things, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You're going to see that God is the reason why we can rejoice and have strength and confidence in him. Read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 over and over and just let the word sink in. It's one of those types of things. We'll do that this morning. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now notice there's two blessings here. Blessed be to God who has blessed us. There's a difference. Blessing God, when we bless God, we honor him. We praise him. When God blesses man, he gives us his grace, mercy, love, and faithfulness. So out of love's God, God's love for us, we turn around and we bless God, but it's not in the same sense, the same words being used here. But positionally, we can't do to God what he does to us. We're the creature, he's the creator. So there's a, there's a different fold there. God blessing us is giving stuff to us that we do not deserve. And on the, recept, on the uh, receiving end of that, we honor and praise God for these things. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the, in the, um, on us the beloved. Now it's interesting as we go through these things and we go through the New Testament we see salvation come up, we see redemption come up, we see reconciliation come up, and we start to think that the main purpose is man's salvation. And it is a key component to the scriptures, and it is true, but that's not God's ultimate purpose. There's one more step that we go from there. So salvation is not the ultimate goal God has in mind. So the main purpose for all humanity is to what? It's to glorify God. It's known as the doxological purpose. Doxa in Greek is, is the word for glory. So we glorify God. Our salvation results in praise, worship, and honor to God. So salvation brings forth us the ability and the enablement to turn around and to worship God for who he is. So the main purpose of all humanity is to glorify God and honor him in all things. The individual who is saved will praise him for all eternity. The individual who is not saved rejects God, refuses to acknowledge him as God, and willfully chooses to spend all eternity in complete hostility towards him. So there's just, it's just either one or the other. Either you're born again and you praise him for all eternity, or you're not born again and you continuously reject him all the way through, even to damnation. Those are the two positions. Now verse 7, in him we have redemption. Notice it says, through his blood, and last week we talked about the new covenant, talking about the church here. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. 
So these are very interesting. We're stopping at verse 9, but if you continue in your devotional reading through verse 14, it really builds and it gets into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the sealing and the um, supernatural protection that we receive from these things and the enablement that God gives us. Now shifting gears here now, I'm going to chapter 2, verse 1. What has God redeemed us from? Man's condition outside of God's grace. Look at verse 1. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, not physically dead. Physical death is when the spirit separates from the body. What Paul's speaking of here is spiritual death, completely disconnected from God. And then as a result in verse 2, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice, this just isn't about our sinful nature. Nine times out of ten, if we're struggling, it is. Our sinful nature, no question. But there are other forces involved. We have our sinful nature, we have Satan and his spiritual influences, and we have the world's system. When we struggle, it's either with one of these three things. A lot of times the world's system, I can't help but thinking going to work, every, you know, Monday through Friday, when you go to work and you just, you know ahead of time as you're driving to work on Monday morning, the people you're going to encounter what you have to go through, just part of the world's system that we're in. If anybody understood this better, it was Paul being imprisoned, understanding discouragement, understanding depression, understanding being cut off from society, yet in his depression he's able to write these prison epistles which glorify God and they motivate everybody else to glorify God. This is the type of situation we're in where the Holy Spirit enables us to do this. So it's not only our sinful nature that we wrestle with, but it's the spiritual forces and it's the fallen world. Now in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So if we think about our, our salvation experience and what we have to be careful for when we are, have been a believer for a certain amount of time, is after a while as we are conforming to the image of Christ, we turn around and we look at the world and we think, how can they do that? When we ourselves at one point of our life was doing, were doing the exact same things that the world's doing. So if we really think about our salvation and what the Lord has delivered us from and where he is taking us to and how he is transforming our hearts and our desires and our minds and he's taken away those evil passions that we have that controlled us and that consumed us, salvation is a purely humbling experience. And we have no position as believers to turn around and point the finger at somebody out of self-condemnation out of self-righteous, as if we have overcome something, we have done something on our own behalf that the world couldn't do. Without God's enablement, we couldn't. So salvation should be very humble. We should think of these things, and our heart should go out for the world that is bound, that is broken, that is bound by their sin, and they cannot escape it. These types of desires that continue over and over and over. One of the statistics that I read in the 2014... Um, annual report for the Outagamie County Jail is in 2014, 71% of the inmates who were booked were booked at least one time prior. So three-quarters of the individuals who get incarcerated have been booked one time before. So it's a continuous process. It's this sinful process. And it's really exciting to see when people become born again in jail and never go back. There's the solution. It's the Lord. Salvation. It delivers us from these things. So salvation is a very humbling experience. Verse 4 in chapter 2, But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love which he loved for us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And it says, By grace you have been saved. 
You have been saved, and the Greek is in the perfect tense. And what this is indicating, it's ongoing permanent condition. It's, an, it's a um, condition that happened in the past, and the results occur into the future. So have been saved. It's in the present, or perfect tense, I'm sorry. And when Paul uses the perfect tense, and when New Testament writers use this specific tense, there's a theological point that they're trying to make, that salvation is a continuous process. It's something that happened in the past, but we result and we feel the benefits into the future. So now Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is these two verses here in your Bible I would require, not require, but just suggest that everybody memorize these two verses. It says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. Again, there's the perfect tense. Same thing as just before. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not as a result from works so that no one may boast. Again, salvation being that humbling experience. Let's define some of these terms. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Can we lose that grace? No. When God gives it to you, it's a charge to our account. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. It's a gift from God. Faith. The instrument by which we receive salvation. No, it's not by works. Not by works. Not by works. Not by works. I don't know how many times I have to repeat that to people sometimes, and myself included. It's not by works. So an example of this and how this practically applies, if we have these light switches over here, and if the light switch is on the off position, all the equipment and everything is there, but it's not functioning like it should. When we flip the light switch from off to on, the electricity then goes through the conduit into the light, and that's the same type of thing. When we believe for salvation, we have a saving faith in Christ, that light switch turns on, and it's through faith that we have that born-again relationship with God. So a lot of times, the way I like to explain grace through faith is grace is when the light switch is flipped, and faith is when the electricity goes through the conduit, which lights up the light bulb. Same thing in our hearts. When we believe, that's by grace, God giving, that, giving this to us, and it's through faith that we become born again and supernaturally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from God. Now it's interesting here. If you look at this verse, <clears throat> you have grace, have been saved, and through faith. And then it says, it is a gift of God. Which one of the three is it referring to? And this is really fun when you, when you, <laughs> when you get into, when you study biblical Greek, this is fun. They take you here because these are one of the, this is what's, in a Greek, it, it, I make kind of sound a little nerdy here, but this is where it really, how do I got to slow down here? <laughs> this is really fun. I mean, it, when you find stuff like this, it's like if you've lost something for such a long time and you finally find out where it is, you know, that, that feeling you get, it is referring to all three. How do we know this? Because it is in the neuter, the gender. Grace, saved, and faith are not in the neuter, so they don't match. Normally, neuter has to match neuter, Masculine matches ma uh, masculine. Feminine matches feminine. Well, they don't match here. That pronoun it is in the neuter, which means all three are a gift. This whole thing, grace, faith, salvation, it's all from God. Access is by grace through faith. So that's what's really fun when you get into the, the biblical language and seeing these things. Notice now it says, not as a result of works. I'm going to read you Romans 4, 4 through 5. It says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So it's simply submitting. It's simply saying, Lord, I am wrong. Lord, you are right. I want that saving faith and I want that relationship with you. And it's at that moment of belief, the Holy Spirit enters, we're born again, 
There's the conversion. This is what Paul's speaking of here. These two verses, 8 and 9, pretty much summarize the whole position of the justification by grace through faith alone. So if our salvation is based upon anything we did, it would be considered a wage, something owed to us. So just think about it, going up to heaven and say, okay, God, I did these things, pay me. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, if we think by works we're saved, that's kind of the attitude we're thinking of. And the word sold out in the Greek, it's a hint clause. It's indicating purpose, so nobody can boast. It's all of God, and we praise him for that. That's why we're here worshiping him this morning. That's why the rest of our lives should be in devotion to what he has done for us, and there we get the glorification of God through our daily service to him, just through daily obedience. That's a form of worship in itself. So now shifting gears to the mystery of Christ. If you go to chapter 3, look at verse 4. I want to spend too much time on this, but what we're going to see here now in verse 4, it says, By referring to this, when you read and when you understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And here we start getting into what the church is. Mystery, what that means, it's a doctrine that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but which is now being revealed in the New Testament. What is this doctrine? Look at verse 9. And to bring the light, bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to man through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So this mystery is revealed in the church. And what this mystery is, if we go back to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul's speaking of the Gentiles here. And in verse 12, it says, Remember that you, referring to the Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now notice this right here. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is Paul referring to here when he's speaking of these things? You have the Jews and you have the law. Salvation, remember um, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John 4 when she was a Samaritan and she had uh, Mount Gerizim behind her and said, we have our salvation through the Samaritan religion. Jesus said, no, salvation is of the Jews, meaning the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament that we have. If you wanted to be saved, it was by grace through faith, and then you converted over and you proselytized into Judaism and you fell under the Mosaic law. You could be saved as a Gentile, but you had to convert to Judaism. So what Paul is saying now is the law, which divided the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus coming in the form, you know, taking on the human nature, fulfilled the law, now that law is gone. Now we're under the law of Christ according to Galatians 6.2, both groups are now joined into one under the body of Christ, the church. So this dividing wall, this barrier, this law has now been taken away and both Jews and Gentiles are now under one group. They are now under one body. So what Paul is saying here is the mystery that's being spoken of is the joining of both Jews into Gentiles into one specific group known as the church. Anybody who's in the church is anybody who's been born again and washed clean by the blood of Christ. The barrier is the law which was broken down at the cross. So instead of Jews having access to God alone, now all nations can come to God by grace through faith. Jesus fulfilled the law. 
The distinctions between the Jews and the, in, in, um, the Gentiles, though, still remains the same. And this becomes a hot topic within Christianity today. Um, the Jews maintain their Jewishness. The Jews maintain their connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jews still have prophetic fulfillment that needs to occur, as we see in Daniel in the book of Revelation during the end times. A lot of times what we're seeing now is people take this and they say, okay, the Jewish distinction is now gone. The church has now replaced Israel. And we get into what's known as replacement theology. That's not what we're going to get into here this morning. I'm just highlighting this, that this wall, this, diver, this divider, this barrier has been erased. The law is gone. The Jews and the Gentiles come together under the church. But there's still a remnant of Jews out there yet who will be saved during the end times. So the distinctions are not erased. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is the church and ethnic Israel is still ethnic Israel. But if a Jew today were to be saved, he would be in the body of Christ. So these distinctions can kind of get a little heavy here. I'm not going to spend too much time on these things. But just highlighting, if we look at chapter 3, verse 11, again, in verse 11, it says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God always knew this, and this was hidden during Old Testament times that God now revealed in the New Testament times under the church. So the last part of the uh, study this morning, if we go to chapter 2, verse 19, I really want to emphasize and, and place pretty much the majority of time on this, which is known as the foundation of the church. So if you look at verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning the Jews who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel, but are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20 is a very theological, very significant theological verse. The whole basis of why we are here this morning rests in verse 20. The cornerstone is the building block of the church, Jesus himself. So the whole church is fitted in Christ. So now, from the very beginning of time, God has spoken and God has communicated in two ways, audibly, and in written form. In Genesis chapter 3, man fell. Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis 3.15, God already had the remedy for sin when he talked about the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent. So in Genesis chapter 3, we already see the Messiah, the concept of the Messiah, who would come and crush the authority of Satan and crush sin and crush death and redeem humanity. So Jesus is already in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, God said to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet. I'm going to put my words in his mouth. And whoever will not listen to those words that he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So we're getting more detail into who this Messiah is. Remember, Jesus is the cornerstone. So if we want to get the foundation of who Jesus is, we go back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Fast forward 2,500 years, Moses is now speaking of this same prophet. We go to Micah 5.2, which was 500 years before Christ was born, and we get some more details on Jesus. It says, for, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in all Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
So we get some more detail, more light shed on who this person is. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be a ruler, and he's also eternal. The last part of this verse says, this Messiah is eternal. So he's not just a man, he's also God, because only God is eternal. So we see in the Old Testament that Jesus was going to redeem through sin, crush the head of the serpent. God's going to require us to listen to the words he has, and he's going to be by very nature God himself. Now we fast forward to the New Testament times. Jesus is born, and this is pretty significant. If you guys want to turn to your Bible to Luke chapter 11, please. The Old Testament spoke of Jesus. The Old Testament had 60 major prophecies about his first coming, each one of those being fulfilled in the life of Christ. So now, the Old Testament speaking of the Messiah, what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? Did Jesus ever... Um, ratify or say yet or authenticate the Old Testament. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 51, he makes an interesting statement here when he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's a pretty significant statement. Why is that? The blood of Abel, what book is that? Genesis chapter 4. Okay, so we have Genesis. So the blood of Zechariah, what book is that? Second Chronicles. So if we take a look at our Bibles, it starts with Genesis and it ends with Malachi. But the Jewish Bible in Jesus' day started with Genesis and ended with Second Chronicles. So what Jesus is saying, the whole Old Testament, he's giving his approval of it. So the Old Testament spoke of Christ. Christ himself authenticated the Old Testament. And Jesus himself fulfilled all the prophecies spoken in the Old Testament. We know that that's God speaking. And when the first century church was going around and preaching and proclaiming Christ, they only had the Old Testament. They had the Greek version, which is known as the Septuagint. Hebrew was translated into Greek. That was their Bible, the Old Testament. That's what they evangelized with. How many of us do that today? Do we evangelize just with the Old Testament? That's what they were doing, right? That was their Bible. Authenticated by Christ, fulfilled in Christ. Now, what about the New Testament? Go to John chapter um, 14. So we know the Old Testament's authentic. We know we can trust that as our foundation. We know Jesus is the source. He's the cornerstone. So we have to see what did Jesus teach in regards to these things. And in John 14, verse 26, this is the upper room discourse. Speaking to his 11 apostles, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So what Jesus is doing here is he's authenticating the writings that the New Testament apostles are going to write. And he's saying they're going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, and all of the events and all of the words that were spoken and seen during that time that the Holy Spirit wants them to write down, they will write down. Go two chapters ahead to chapter 16 in John Verse 13, we see this again. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. So, we have the 11 apostles in the upper room. The authentication of the New Testament is in the apostles and the prophets. And we saw that in Ephesians 2.20. Jesus being the cornerstone, the foundation, the apostles, and the prophets. So what are we seeing here in all of this? 
Jesus authenticated the writing which became the New Testament, declaring that the apostles or an associate of the apostles would be writing them. These writings are now contained in the 66 books that we call the Bible sitting on your lap this morning. The Old Testament, fulfilled, ratified by Christ. The New Testament, ratified by Christ, fulfilled through the apostles. So the closing of the New Testament then would have to be at the end of the apostolic era, meaning when the last apostle died out, that's the closing of the New Testament canon. Because Jesus only gave apostles this authority or an associate with an apostle. So, for instance, Luke was not an apostle, but he was an associate with um, Paul. So Paul authenticated him to do what he did, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Acts and Luke, those types of things. They were an associate with the apostle. So we're seeing here then, the cornerstone is Jesus, the foundation, the apostles, and the prophets. The basis and the foundation of the Christian faith are the 66 God-breathed books that we have in our Bible. This Bible becomes the sole rule of faith for the Christian church because the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, authenticated it. So the question, we get asked this all the time as Christians, why only the Bible? Why not the Quran? Why not the Bhagavad Gita? Why not the Book of Mormon? Why not any other church tradition? Why just the Bible? Well, because it goes back to God speaking. God spoke in the Old Testament to the prophets. They wrote it down concerning the Messiah. The Messiah was both God and man. When the Messiah was on earth, he fulfilled every prophecy that was written about him. He turns around and authenticates the Old Testament. Then he authenticates the New Testament through the apostles. The apostles write the 27 books in the New Testament. The canon's closed. That's our foundation. That's what the Christian church bases every belief and everything we do upon. That alone. Scripture alone. So the answer, since Jesus the cornerstone only gave the apostles the authority to write scripture, the New Testament ended at the death of the apostles. No more revelation from God is coming. The apostolic era ended about 100 AD. So now go to Ephesians 4. Look at verse 11. We see the foundation of the church building during Paul's time. It says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So the apostles, the apostolic era is finished as far as the apostle um, visibly seeing the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The prophets in regard to inspired scripture, prophecy in that sense has ceased because the canon closed at 100 A.D., now we see evangelists, now we see pastors, and now we see teachers carrying forth what the Bible has said for the past 2,000 years. The message that Christ gave. Now look at verse 12. What is all of this for? It's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what this all means is spiritual maturity, evangelism, growth, which turns around and we glorify God through it. That's the Christian church. That's where we're at. So the fundamental basis now, shifting gears. Let's look at today. Let's look at right now today. The fundamental basis for truth in today's culture. What's the basis for truth in the Christian faith? Jesus Christ, the apostles and the prophets and the word of God alone. That's our fundamental. That's our basis. How about for the world today? We look at our culture, what is the basis for truth in our culture? And the answer is pretty much subjective. It's whatever you want it to be. Is society starting to unravel? Is it becoming undone? I think it's a no-brainer. Yes, right? I was, um, Facebook has a lot of interesting news articles. 
And a couple days ago, um, in Central Park in New York, I don't know if you guys saw this, um, some women were acting out Shakespeare, but they were doing it nude. All right? So now we all roll our eyes, right? But now, it's always interesting to see what people have to say about this. So you click on the comments and you read people's comments. Oh, the human body is beautiful. That's their freedom of expression. So where are they getting this from? And why is that wrong for those women to do that? This is the question our culture cannot answer. Because if it does not have any basis for faith or for truth, any fundamental reason why right is right and what wrong is wrong, or value, sin, death, why are those things bad? If we don't have that foundation, the world is just going to go whatever way it wants to, and you cannot say for certain why something is right or something is wrong. So if we have no foundation for truth, and today's culture questions everything, you can't know anything for certain. So everything is subjective. Here's the question, and it always comes down to these two questions. Does the culture decide what is right and wrong, or does God decide what is right and wrong? Obviously, we as believers know it's God. Where do we get our source of information to know what's right or wrong? Right into the scriptures. Last year, with the Supreme Court decision of same-sex marriage, does the culture decide and define what marriage is? Or does God set the parameters for marriage in the family? What is the basis of marriage? Where do we even get that idea from? Go to Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam and Eve. One man, one woman in unity for life. That's God's plan and foundation for marriage. When man steps outside of this, look at the problems that come about. And this is really fun to talk about up at the jail too. When you bring this up to guys, you say, okay, abstinence. If everybody in the world practiced abstinence until they were married, STDs, unwanted pregnancies, single moms, all of that would go away. And they look at you and they're like, I never thought about it. And it's true. If we live according to the way God has prescribed us to live, we will always live in a peaceful manner. But if we step outside of what God says and man becomes the authority, man becomes the basis, his own subjective opinion defines what is right and wrong, we see our culture unraveling today, getting away from God's prescription that he's given us in his word. Here's another one. In regards, now, when I'm speaking of these things, this is not of hate, this is out of love. This is not out of self-righteous condemnation, but we're just speaking truth. In regards to transgender identity, a person being able to decide on a day-to-day -day basis what gender they want to define themselves as. Does a person even have the right to do this? Can a person say, today I'm a male? Today I'm a female. I get to choose what bathroom I go into. Or does God decide what gender we're going to be when he creates us? It comes down to the same issue every single time. One last verse I want to turn to. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, is going to answer all of these questions that we just did. Jesus is speaking here. Yeah, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And all of these things that we see, keep seeing in the news, and all of these problems that keep arising, these, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we'd have never thought we'd be dealing with these things today. I can't imagine what's coming to come down the line 10, 15 years from now, you know. I just don't. But here's the thing. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, has joined together, let no man separate. So God has defined the parameters and the fundamental basis for how we two are to live our lives. And if we step outside of that, what we're saying is, no, God, I'm either going to reject you, or I think I have a better way, or you don't have the right to tell me what to do. So the creation is turning around and looking back at the creator and saying no. And this is where we see in the rebellious heart of man. It continues to go. As foundations erode, as Judeo-Christian values erode from our society, this is the only thing that is left. Modern man, in his subjective opinion, confused as to what's right and what's wrong. I mean, having no compass, no barrier, no parameter as to point in which direction to go. So now back in Ephesians, and we'll close up. Ephesians 4. He's going to speak into the church now. And the last part of Ephesians is um, biblical conduct, godly living. And in Ephesians 4.14, <coughs> Paul says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Why? Because we have a foundation for truth. We have the foundation for truth. We, shall ne we should never question meaning, value, origins, morality, destiny. These, we, we have them answered. The Christian life we really have a huge benefit because God even tells us the future. We have peace with Christ knowing that in his word he has told us the past, the present, and the future and we have an answer for all of the difficult questions in life. And it's not that it's just an answer, it's the truth. And we have that. So we never struggle with these things. So have you ever noticed now that the position the culture takes pretty much on any issue today is exactly opposite what the Bible teaches? The exact opposite. I think that's by coincidence. One last verse, Ephesians 6.12. I'm sure many of you know this. We'll close with this verse, and then verse 17. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces and wickedness in the heavenly places. Remember Paul said we are a spectacle not just to the world, but we are a spectacle to... And the word in Greek is, it's, it's a theater to the angels or to the spiritual realm. And what happens in this realm here, Paul's saying, has already been determined in the spiritual realm. That's more real than this one. So if we sit here and scratch our heads as to why every single thing in our culture today is exactly opposite of what the Bible teaches, it's by design. Not that man is smart enough to do this. In his heart, he has the nature to do this. Doesn't understand why he does it. But there's a spiritual struggle behind the scenes that we have to realize is there. And this is where we have to focus our attack. If we focus it on just politics alone, nothing's going to happen. We have to get to the hearts and the individuals of the man. If we convert people, if people are born again, and now they can spiritually start to see what the Word of God teaches, then the culture will follow. But we have to reach the souls of men before anything political will change. Otherwise, they're going to be blinded and they're just going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Paul's saying the church is not to be this. It's to be on the foundation of Christ. Jesus, the cornerstone, upon the word of God, having the answers for the difficult questions in today's culture. So what do we use to combat these spiritual forces? In closing, verse 17, chapter 6. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that's it. So let's finish in prayer, and that'll be it for Ephesians this morning.
Lord, we just thank you that you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit. Lord, that we have this relationship with you, being born again, spiritually being able to understand your will and having the Holy Spirit indwell us, transforming our hearts, illuminating our minds so we can see the word and we can see the world. And Lord, we pray for the world. We pray that the people that we interact with on a daily basis can see not just good behavior, but a reason why we have the good behavior. The hope is in Christ. We thank you for this, Lord. We want to lift up all our requests and make them known to you this morning. We pray, Lord, you just go before us this week. We thank you for all things, and in your son's name we pray. Amen.